are you this morning? Good. Good to see you. Merry Christmas. It's coming. Christmas is coming. But before we talk about Christmas, let's talk about TV. TV has changed a lot since I was a kid. I'm going to be 36 on December 12th. And uh, when I was growing up, we had 30 to 40 channels. We had cable, and that was the best cable package money could buy. 30 to 40 channels. Uh, All in standard definition. No crystal clear picture at all. But it was in color. I'm not that old. And uh, in our home, and I did not grow up poor. I did not grow up rich, but I did not grow up poor. We were solidly middle class. We had one 19-inch color TV in our family room. And I turned out just about almost fine. My favorite show growing up was Full House. You probably, yeah, like if you know Full House, just make some kind of awkward church noise. Go ahead. Yeah, you know Full House. Everyone who's like under, you know, 30 is like, what is he talking about? You probably know about that show if you grew up in the 90s, the best time to grow up. The world was super stable then. Uh, just like it is now. And uh, if you raised your children in the 90s, you also know about Full House. Danny, Joey, Jesse, Becky, DJ, Stephanie, Michelle, Comet, and Kimmy Gibbler. And if you don't know what any of those names are, don't worry, you'll know a name soon, Jesus. I've probably seen every episode at least three or four times of Full House. Sometimes my younger sister and I, Laura, will just play this game of Full House trivia. We'll ask one another trivia questions about Full House and try to stump one another because we're cool. Uh, Recently, my family has gotten our hands on all eight seasons of the show, and my kids have started watching Full House. Rewatching the show as an adult is interesting. Truthfully, the show isn't intriguing at all. It's not remotely thoughtful. It is incredibly cheesy and wildly predictable, but I love it. You probably have your favorite TV show as well from years gone by, and I would guess that you would still enjoy watching the reruns of your favorite show. There is something good about familiarity. When we come to December, We return to a story that most of us are very familiar with. Even if you haven't been in church in a while, or you've never been to church before, in our part of the world, almost everyone knows some details of the Christmas story. I think looking at the Christmas story each year is a little bit like watching a rerun of a show we love. The upside is, is that this is something we know and you can easily connect to the Christmas story because you know it so well. However, there's a downside. Like everything in your life that is familiar, it's easy to take for granted what we know so well. And you know what? We could go through the month of December and we're going to talk about the Christmas story. Pastors don't need to really think long and hard. Gee, I wonder what I'm going to talk about this December. We're going to do the rerun of the Christmas story. But here's what I know about my heart. Maybe this is true about your heart. When we hear spiritual truth that we'd hear before, heard before, do you know what our hearts love to say? Oh, I've heard this before. Last night, my wife Cheryl said to me, what are you preaching about? And I said, everything you've heard before. Nothing I'm going to say today, for most of us, is going to be new information. You should take notes. 
You should engage. But nothing I say is going to be like, oh my gosh, I've never heard that before. You know the story. You know this message. And yet what we know doesn't necessarily mean that what we know has transformed us. The Christian life, it's easy to know about stuff. It's far different to experience transformation because of what we know. So can we just pause at the beginning of this rerun and pray that God would open up our hearts to what he wants to say. Lord, we acknowledge that we are wildly prideful. We think we've heard amazing truth before and we've graduated into some kind of master's class of Christianity. The truth is, Lord, we're all in our freshman year, every single one of us. Lord, maybe we're in the second semester of our freshman year, but we're still in our freshman year. So, Lord, I pray that as we come to the Christmas story today and we see what you have done for us, Jesus, Holy Spirit, I pray that you would burn these truths into our heart. I pray you would help me to say, Lord, only what you want me to say, and you would speak and minister through me this morning. Come, Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Amen. Matthew chapter 1, starting in verse 18. Matthew tells the Christmas story from Joseph's perspective. The Gospel of Luke tells the Christmas story from Mary's perspective. We'll be in Matthew this week and next week and the week after and on Christmas Eve. Verse 18. This is how the birth of Jesus Christ came about. His mother Mary was pledged to be married to Joseph. But before they came together, she was found to be with child through the Holy Spirit. We'll talk about how that happened next week. Come back. Because Joseph, her husband, was a righteous man and did not want to expose her to public disgrace, he had in mind to divorce her quietly. But after he had considered this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife, because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. Verse 21 is where we're going to camp out today. What are we going to talk about today? Only verse 21. She will give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins. A person's name held far more importance in the culture that Jesus was born into than in our culture. A name was thought to be linked with or pointing to the character or destiny of an individual. Jesus was a rather common name in Joseph and Mary's day. They were not the first parents to name their son Jesus. There were other little Jesuses running around their community. Jesus, or Yeshua in Hebrew, is a shortened form of the name Joshua, which means Yahweh is salvation. The name Jesus is a shortened form of the Hebrew name Joshua, which means Yahweh is salvation. Yahweh was the name of God that the Israelites would often use, Yahweh, referring to the fact that God is I am. Maybe if you've been in church with us before and we've sung the song, The Great I Am, Yahweh is the proper name of I am. Yahweh is salvation. Jesus, 
He will save his people. The Jewish people living in Jesus' day were certainly expecting and anticipating a Savior. It was widely believed that a Savior would come and save Israel from the oppression of the Roman government. The Jews were living in this kind of hope. When will Messiah come and save us from the iron fist of Rome? Even Jesus' disciples who spent three years with him thought Jesus was the one who had come to overthrow the Roman government. Towards the end of Matthew's gospel in chapter 20, the mother of James and John, two of Jesus' disciples, asked Jesus, Jesus, can my son sit at your right and then on your left when you come into your kingdom? That was not a question about heaven. Jesus' own disciples were still under the impression that Jesus was on his way to Jerusalem to defeat Rome and reassert political prominence for Israel. Some of us still believe that Jesus has come to make America great again. He has not. This is not the kind of saving that Jesus came to do. It was not a political saving. Jesus had come to save his people from their sins, not their political enemies. Throughout the Old Testament, we find the repeated theme that the day was coming, that Christmas was coming, when God would save his people not from their enemies, but from their sin. God spoke through the prophet Jeremiah in Jeremiah chapter 31, verses 31 through 34. This is what God says through Jeremiah. The time is coming. The time is coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. It will not be like the covenant I made with their forefathers when I took them by the hand to lead them out of Egypt because they broke my covenant Though I was a husband to them, declares the Lord. This is the covenant I will make with the house of Israel after that time, declares the Lord. I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. No longer will a man teach his neighbor or a man his brother saying, Know the Lord, because they will all know me from the least to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their wickedness, and I will remember their sins no more. The time is coming. And then in Psalm 130, verses 7 through 8, many scholars believe that this verse is what Matthew was actually alluding to. This is what the angel who came to Joseph, that Jesus will save his people from their sins. Many people think the angel was referencing Psalm 130, verses 7 and 8. Oh, Israel, put your hope in the Lord, for with the Lord is unfailing love, and with him is full redemption. He himself will redeem Israel from all their Democrats. No. From the new tax bill. No. From their sins. Jesus Christ is the fulfillment of God's promise 
to save people from sin. What is sin? What is sin? Some of us have been taught that the word sin simply means to miss the mark. That doesn't make us feel bad at all. That means you went out and did target practice and shot poorly. No one's repenting because they missed the target. That is a far too sanitized and not at all strong enough definition to capture the seriousness of our sin. When the Bible talks about sin, it is speaking about rebellion against God, disobedience to his laws, refusal to follow his commands and his leadership. Sin is also idolatry. A lot of us think that people who practice idolatry have some kind of shrine set up and small little statues in their home where they bow down and worship. Our idolatry is when we give our allegiance to created things rather than the creator. Our idolatry is revealed in our refusal to give our money because we worship God not more than we worship wealth. We see our idolatry when we put so much expectation on our children to make us look good. And so much expectation on our children to be perfect or to somehow fulfill the dreams that didn't actualize for us. And they become our idols. And we worship created things instead of our creator. Some of us worship our jobs. You know you're worshiping your jobs when you refuse to rest from your work. Because you think everything depends on you. We're idolaters. We're sinful. We've given our allegiance to the created things instead of to our creator. Sin is saying yes to your desires. We live in a culture that says, if you feel it, you should do it. Really? If we did everything we felt, from our sexual urges to our violent tendencies to the greed and the gossip that rests in our hearts, our self-righteousness, our feeling better and looking down upon others. If we acted on all those desires, oh my goodness, I don't even want to imagine what would happen to the world. In fact, we have acted on all our desires. Read the news. See what happens. Some of us are like, yeah, I'm glad we don't do that all the time. When we act on our desires and not God's desires, that's sin. And it's not just that we do the wrong things. Sin is not simply, oh, I made a mistake. Some of us don't have a deep life of repentance because we're always excusing our sin and calling it a mistake. Sin is not a mistake. Sin is rebellion against God. And that rebellion is not something you just do with your will. It's a disease that has impacted your heart and my heart. We are not first and foremost victims. I need you to know that. You are first and foremost not a victim of the sin of someone else. Has other people's sin victimized you? Absolutely. Absolutely. And at the same time, you are also a perpetrator. Sin reigns in your heart apart from Christ. 
I love this quote from Don Carson. He is a New Testament scholar, and I think he sums up so beautifully the problem of sin. He says, the problem that is addressed by the Bible storyline is the problem of sin. And the solution that is presented in the coming of Christ and in his work must match the problem itself. If the fundamental problem of humankind is bad economics, then what we need is a superb economist. If the supreme need of humankind is good health, then what we need is superb medical facilities. But if the supreme problem is sin, then what we need is a salvation that addresses sin, not only the concrete acts of rebellion, but all of its effects. This Tuesday night, um, excuse me for a moment. This Tuesday night, we were, uh, I was in my small group, me with a group of guys, we're doing a study through the Apostles' Creed. And uh, this Tuesday night, um, we were in small group and we had listened to the teaching and we were having a discussion and it was such a good night of, of group. We were talking about real stuff, guys were being open. And I got asked a question at my small group that I thought was probably the best question I've ever been asked in any small group in the history of small groups. One of my buddies who was there looked at me and just as seriously and earnestly and sincerely looked at me and said, what does God want from me? What does God want from me? Man, I loved that question. And I sat there for a moment and I, I, I tried to measure my words because it made me think, yeah, what does God want from me? And I feel like the Spirit of God just gave me this illustration and I asked this person, I said, what do you want from your spouse? What do you want from your wife? And I said, I imagine you want your wife to do some things you know, whether she's responsible for cooking or laundry or whatever her role is, however you've divided the family work. You want some, her to do some things. But what you ultimately want from your wife is not a good meal on the table every night. What you ultimately want from your spouse is her heart. You want to know that she's yours, not in kind of some weird possessive way, but that she has given herself to you totally and without reservation. Every time I do a wedding, part of the vows that I write is I ask the couple to say to their spouse, I give myself to you totally and un." reservedly. What does God want from you? Does he want your tithe dollars? Does he want your service in ministry? Does he want my preaching? Does he want you to serve in the nursery? Does he want you to support Operation Backpack? Does he want you to love your neighbor? Yes. But those are all on the second level, at the deepest part of what God wants from you. He wants your heart. God wants you. And here's the problem. 
your sin and my sin is standing in the way. Your sin and my sin is standing in the way of God totally having our hearts. The deepest problem in your life is not your spouse, is not your boss, is not your annoying neighbor, is not your unruly child, is not your financial problems. The deepest problem in your life is your sin. What is holding you back the most is sin. And Christmas is when God broke into history to decisively and completely deal with what has disconnected us from Him. Christmas is a celebration that the Savior from sin has come. The coming of Jesus to save us from sin was God's initiative to have your heart. Christmas is filled with unspeakable joy and wonder and beauty and awe because you are rebellious, you are wicked, you have turned your back on God. No matter how nice everyone thinks you are, no matter how rosy your personality is, underneath all of that is a heart that rejects the authority of God and Christmas, God comes to us and he says, I see your rebellion. I see that you're running from me. I see that you're turned away from me. I see your sin and I have come to save you from having it. It's an amazing moment to celebrate God's initiating work to save us. So two points today. How does Jesus save us from sin? How does Jesus save us from sin? Number one, he bears the penalty of your sin and my sin. He bears the penalty of sin. 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 24 through 25, he himself, Jesus, bore our sins in his body on the tree so that we might die to sins and live for righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed, for you were like sheep going astray. You were running from God. You didn't wake up one morning and say, oh, I really want God. You have been running from him. You have been rebelling against him. You have always been a rebel against authority. How do I know that? Because your two-year-old's first word is not, sure, mom, yes, dad, it's no. Some of us have a trouble with, well, are people really born bad? Are you serious? What planet are you on? No offense, but be offended. You're not paying attention. Spend a little time in our toddler room. Sin is real. Rebellion is active. We are sheep running from our shepherd. But because of the sin-bearing death of Jesus, we have now returned to the shepherd and overseers of our souls. Hebrews chapter 9, verses 26 through 28. But now he, Jesus 
has appeared once for all at the end of the age to do away with sin by the sacrifice of himself. Just as man is destined to die once and after that to face judgment, so Christ was sacrificed once to take away the sins of many people. And he will appear a second time. Jesus will return, not to bear sin. He's already done that. But to bring salvation to those who are waiting for him. Oh, it is getting easier and easier in our world to begin to yearn for Jesus to come. Romans chapter 3, verses 23 through 25. For everyone has sinned. Who's everyone? Everyone. We, fall short, we all fall short of God's glorious standard. Who measures up? Who are the spiritual superstars among us? Who prays the most? Who's most consistent in their devotional life? Who's the biggest giver? All of us fall short of God's standard. There is no reason to walk with a swagger in the Christian life. Nobody becomes a follower of Jesus and be like, yo, I got this. No, you don't. How do I know that? You're falling short. And you're in an amazing company. Yet God, in his grace, freely makes us right in his sight. He did this through Christ Jesus when he freed us What did Jesus free us from? The penalty for our sins. For God presented Jesus as the sacrifice for sin. People are made right with God when they believe that Jesus sacrificed his life, shedding his blood. Do you know that you and I, we deserve to die in our sin? We deserve to be punished for all eternity because of my rebellion and your idolatry. But Jesus comes to take our place and receive the penalty we all deserved. When we say that Jesus is a Savior, what we are saying is that he is saving us from experiencing God's judgment on our sin. You're not saved from the devil. You're saved from the wrath of God. God is so just and loves you so much that he could not receive you apart from a perfect sacrifice. He could not receive you apart from someone, a sinless, spotless lamb, bearing the sin of the whole world. Jesus had to die to satisfy the justice of God. And in the sending of his son, God shows us the depths of his love. We are saved when we kind of throw around these words in our Christian circles, we are saved from experiencing God's judgment. So Jesus has not come to save us from some of our bad days or the agenda of the political party we most disagree with. Jesus has come to die in our place for our sin and experience the consequences of your sin. He died instead of you. He saved you. The second way, how does Jesus save? Number two, he breaks the power of sin. He didn't just bear the penalty, he broke the power. Romans chapter 6 through verses 5 through 11 says this, Since we have been united with him in his death, we will also be raised to life as he was. 
We know that our, own, our old sinful selves were crucified with Christ so that sin might lose its power in our lives. We are no longer slaves to sin. Isn't that amazing? We are no longer slaves to sin. For when we died with Christ, we were set free from the power of sin. And since we died with Christ, we know we will also live with him. We are sure of this because Christ was raised from the dead and he will never die again. Death no longer has any power over him. When he died, he died once to break the power of sin. But now that he lives, he lives for the glory of God. So you also should consider yourselves to be dead to the power of sin and alive to God through Christ Jesus. Baby Jesus is good news. If you have put your faith in Jesus Christ, you have the power to put your sin to death. You don't have to sin. Your life does not need to be dominated by the temptations you are facing. You have a choice. You have a power within you. And it's not a Disney World power by believing in yourself. It's the presence of Jesus Christ when you united to Christ by faith. The power of sin was broken in your life. It's not that you will no longer experience sinful desires. It's that when you do, you can say no to your sinful leanings. I am not suggesting it's possible to never sin again. That will not happen until heaven. But what we are being told is that you should consider yourself dead to sin. Sin does not have master over you. You have the upper hand in Jesus Christ. You need to tell your soul and your mind and your body the truth. Sin's power is broken because of Christ. Why? Because Jesus has come to save you from yourself. How do I know this? Paul tells us. We know that our old sinful selves were crucified with Christ so that sin might lose its power in our lives. You don't have the power. You don't have the ability within you to overcome sin on your own. It's only through the power of Christ. It's only through being united to Jesus, the one who has come to save us from sin. At the center of the Christmas story is not simply a baby in a manger, but rather a Savior who has come to rescue us. I'm going to invite... Jeff and Vinny to join me on stage. We're going to sing our first Christmas carol together as a community. And before we sing, I want to read this quote to you that I came across this week by an author named Paul Tripp. And I thought this was so perfect for what God is speaking to us this morning. Paul Tripp says this, from the moment of his first breath, the life of that baby in the manger was marching toward a tree. It would not be a tree of beauty or celebration, but of sacrifice and death. It would not stand in someone's home as part of a seasonal tradition, but would be outside the city walls on a hill of execution. That baby wouldn't stand before his tree and smile at its beauty, but would be tortured by it, nailed to it, among convicts. 
That tree on the hill was not a symbol of a season, but it was an instrument of judgment. On that seemingly hopeless hill, that tree of death gave life and hope to humanity. The Advent season tells a story that will take your breath away. It's a story about inescapable need, a glorious incarnation, a substitutionary life, an atoning sacrifice, and a victorious resurrection. Only God could write such a story, and only God could complete the plot. It's a story meant to amaze us, to humble us, to capture us, to rescue us, to transform us, and cause us to live in wonder and in worship. This story provides the only way you can make sense out of your identity and your true need. This story reveals where hope is to be found and points you to the meaning of your existence.